Well, thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Steve. I'm an alcoholic. Well, it's a, it is a pleasure to be here this weekend with you. I, I want to thank Bill so much for the invitation and the opportunity to spend the weekend with you and be a part of the 34th uh, Cornhusker Roundup. Uh, I want to thank my friend Edith for being such a great host. Amy for picking me up today. Uh, I've already run into a host of friends, people that I already know, respect, and admire, and uh, and then I've met some new folks already tonight and look forward to meeting more of you during the course of the weekend. So uh, uh, thank you so much for having me. And, and let me say a couple of things so, so I don't forget them and so you know I'm not confused about it. One is I don't suffer from the delusion that you need to hear what I have to say. <laughs> but i got an overwhelming need to say it. So, uh, 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 so I appreciate the opportunity. And I say that. Jokingly, but also seriously, you know, this is a, uh, I don't believe that, that certainly I don't get the opportunity to speak from the podium every now and then because I'm a special member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I believe you send me home a better member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the gift is I get to spend time with such substantial people and, and people who are enthusiastic. You've already demonstrated about their recovery as you are. So uh, uh, I probably need this a lot more than any of you, and I really appreciate that opportunity. Uh, the other thing, somebody asked me at dinner tonight if, if I get nervous. And, and, you know, I don't typically get very nervous, and I'll tell you why. I, uh, it's because I, I don't feel any particular obligation to do a good job. Uh, that might not comfort you, but, but it's... Uh, uh, when I was uh, uh, about four or five years sober, uh, uh, I had spoken at a, a little group meeting in Richmond, Virginia, where I was living, and, and I'd stumbled and bumbled my way all the way through the talk and was very self-conscious and, and felt terrible about it. And I left. I got home. I called my sponsor, Joe, and I said, Joe, I just don't think I did a very good job tonight. And he said, well, Steve, you're starting from a false premise, pal. He says, because that implies there's a night you think you did do a good job. <laughs> But he said, in fact, that it was uh, that it was not, you know, my obligation. It was not up to me to do a good job or a bad job. That that what I was to do was show up and do what I was invited to do, to the best of my ability on that given night. And and that's what you'll get the best I got. And uh, uh, Joe later said, my best often isn't very good. But uh, 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 so uh, about three years after that, I was speaking at what was the big speaker meeting in Richmond, Virginia. About 200 people. And I was now nervous again, and I told Joe before, you know, we were talking before the meeting, I said, Joe, I am nervous now. I, I said, this is far and away the largest crowd I've ever spoken before. And he said, Steve, don't worry, pal. He said, by the time you're done, it'll be down to the size you're used to. And, uh, <laughs> uh, that could happen here. Uh, I was talking to someone tonight whose who's husband works security here, and I said, this will, my talk is one of the few places where security has crowd control during the talk uh, with people exiting the room. Uh, uh, look, I, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm going to try to do what I was invited to do. Uh, uh, Bill had said that he had uh, heard my talk one time on CD, and I said, I, I don't have any idea whether the talk you heard is the talk I'll give tonight. Uh, I, what I recognize is that over time, even what it was like in my story changes because with time and perspective, I begin to see things differently than I did before. I have realized, frankly, that for a long time I suffered from a past that never actually happened. And, uh, 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 you know, because I think the real miracle, at least from my point of view and my it, the 
the miracle of my recovery is not the circumstances of my life having changed. I mean, they have changed. The conditions of my life changed. But, but over the time I've been sober, that those conditions have been flow. Uh, good things, seemingly good things, seemingly bad things have happened, but, but life has shown up in a variety of different ways. So what's miraculous to me about my recovery is the experience of my life from the inside out. Uh, and so what I also begin to see is I look back and see things differently, and I, and I also know that the experience I had, while I'm totally committed to being honest with you tonight, uh, I'm not nearly as committed to being accurate. Uh, <laughs> I'm often honestly mistaken. And uh, uh, what I've realized is, is my experience, uh, uh, my mother and my older sister and I were having dinner not long ago and we began to talk about different things in our family. And we were all talking about one particular event uh, at, a, at a family gathering and we realized that we all had a real different recollection or experience of that evening. So the way I saw things is not always the way they happened. I was going to Myrtle Beach a few years ago, and, and my host there we had never met. And uh, uh, I got off the plane, and, and we had talked on the phone a few times, and we couldn't locate each other. And, and we're talking on the cell phones. He said, Steve, I'm right over here at, uh, you know, baggage carousel number six. I, I said, no, you can't be, man. I'm just right over there. I don't see. He said, no, I'm right here. And we kept talking, and finally we, we located each other. And we realized the reason that we had not been able to find each other is we had both described ourselves as much more attractive than we really are. <laughs> So what I know is how I see me is often not how other people see me. And, and how I see other people is often not how they see themselves. You know, I was in a meeting not too long ago, in the last couple of years, and, and it was a four-step meeting, and there was a relatively new guy, and uh, he was... Uh, uh, you know, trying to avoid the fifth step. And, and, and he says, I really don't get it. Just like it says in the, in the twist, he says, I don't know why I have to go this step further and, and tell this to somebody else. He says, he says, I know me better than anyone. And as I listened to him, I, what struck me is I don't think that's true about me. What's true about me is I have more information about me than anyone. But I misinterpret the information. And that's what's been so important about me sharing my view of myself with other people is to get that feedback and, and, uh, and to begin to get to see those things about me that I can't see. And uh, as Joe told me one time, he said, Steve, you're not who you think you are. You're not who they think you are. And you're sure as hell not who you think they think you are. And, uh, uh, if you think about it, I've given an awful lot of time and thoughtful consideration to all of those prospects. What I think, what I think you think. I mean, my goodness, that will, I live so much of my life that way, it will wear me out. And it will cause me to be like the big book talks about the guy that's the actor. And he wears two faces. And it's a stage character that he wants his fellows to see, but in his heart he knows he doesn't deserve it. You know, he wants to be a man of certain reputation. My problem was, is I kept trying to impress each person, each group, by trying to, to dance to what I thought was the appropriate tune for these folks. Never free to be who I was. So even when I got what seemed like a positive response, I knew you were responding to the actor, to the fraud, and it left me empty. And Alcoholics Anonymous, over time, you've helped me be more and more comfortable with who I am. You've helped me relax. It takes up my, Joe, Joe said, Steve, it's going to require a lot of humility for you to be okay with you as screwed up as you are. 
But that's a lot of what I don't get perfect here at AA, but a lot of what I find is, is, is a, a level of comfort with the imperfection, what Ernie Kurtz called the spirituality of imperfection. Anyway, I got a sobriety date. It's June 30th, 1989. And I've got a home group. It's the backroom group of Alcoholics Anonymous. It meets every Saturday and Sunday morning in Nashville, Tennessee. We have a 9 a.m. literature study on Saturdays. It's 12 and 12, and Sundays it's a big book. And at 10.30, we have an open discussion meeting. And, and it's, I'm a grateful member of that home group, and it is my home group not just because of what happens on Saturdays and Sundays. We have great meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. But as a home group, what I'm attracted to is a level of activity of, of the group and its members between meetings, is the carrying of the message and the outreach uh, uh, to correctional facilities and treatment facilities and, and the events that we have with each other and, and celebrate our recovery with our friends and our family. And, uh, uh, and that's what's attractive to me about that group. Uh, I told you my sobriety date is June 30th, 1989. I will now share with you what is uh, uh, always the most embarrassing thing I share from the podium. I've been here a couple of days. Thank, thank goodness that, uh, uh, you know, I've looked around. And, and, you know, there's some bad alcoholics in here. Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but some of you got here just in time. And, uh, uh, and, and worse yet, some of you not quite. And uh, 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 so I know that there's some, uh, you know, some, some I'm, I'm riding around with Edith. Edith was a hard-drinking woman. Y'all have heard some of that. My last drink was an amaretta on the rocks. Yeah. I share your disgust. And... Uh, uh, I am appropriately ashamed of that. <laughs> but what you now know is I did not know that was going to be my last drink when I took it. You know, I would not have gone down that way. Uh, <laughs> so, they had a little meeting and said, Steve, we've been talking, buddy, and uh, you can have one more drink. What will it be? <laughs> Amaretta would not have made the top ten, but... Uh, uh, but the truth of the matter is, is uh, uh, I was scheduled into a treatment facility on July the 1st of 1989. And I say scheduled because that's exactly the circumstances. I had not had some uh, epiphany and decided that I needed or wanted to stop drinking. I didn't think my life required some moral uplift. I, I wasn't looking for some huge change of direction in my life. I was simply going to fulfill my obligation to the legal system of Williamson County, Tennessee, for the conviction of my six DUI a year earlier. As part of the plea bargain that we had done with that, they had given me some jail time and had negotiated some of that jail time down if I would go to uh, uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation, a residential treatment. Uh, and I said that I would. And I didn't make that choice, frankly, out of, certainly not out of any virtue. It was, uh, it was more a math issue for me. And uh, 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 even my public school math education began, went quickly to work, and they were going to give me either 60 days in jail or uh, 10 weekends in jail and this treatment. And the quick math showed 60 days versus 48 days, and uh, one had no more appeal really than the other for me. And uh, uh, so I, you know, magnanimously said I would accept their offer. And, uh, uh, and now it was time to, uh, uh, to go to that treatment facility on July the 1st. So my wife and I went out with uh, three other couples on June the 29th, kind of a 
last hurrah, a little party before I was going to go away. I came home that night. I, I, I poured myself an amaretta, smoked a joint, and went to bed. And, uh, uh, never dreaming the party was over. And uh, uh, the next day, uh, my wife and I took our then five-year-old daughter, Abby, to uh, Chuck E. Cheese before Daddy was going to go away on a 28-day business trip. And, uh, uh, now, you've already gathered, uh, if you've been paying attention, I'm really not a very tough guy, and, and uh, this is not going to be a, a blood-and-gut story. But uh, if you haven't stopped drinking yet, let me do make one public service announcement. Do not spend your first day sober at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> it was a hellish day at Chuck E. Cheese. Because, you know, it is loud in there. And uh, uh, they're just short and coming at you from every direction. And, uh, just as I'm gathering my emotional balance, uh, there's a six-foot mouse in the back of the room. And I am trying hard not to see this mouse. And my wife, Connie, was with me. I said, baby, do you see the mouse? And you know what? We're laughing and having a good time, and boy, we have a right to, and, and I hope we do. What you guys know is that there was nothing funny going on during that time. While the, while the circumstances I described happened just as I described them, uh, there was nothing funny happening. Lots of times I know when, when uh, I listen to people talk from the podium, particularly early on, it sounded to me like they knew what was going on as it was happening. Because, and, and, and if you suffer from that, that's not true of me. Believe me, I did not know. Life was just happening to me. I got a friend that says life is fired at point-blank range, you know. Uh, these things are just happening to me, and, and, and uh, I'm not, I can't articulate what's going on in my life. I couldn't have sat down and explained what was going on. Clearly, I drank and, and things happened, as the book says. I drank and got in trouble. I drank and disappointed uh, uh, and betrayed the trust of the people I loved the most. I drank and didn't show up, you know. I did, all, I did a lot of tacky, tawdry things, you know. Every, everything that happens to us as alcoholics, and certainly me, isn't that huge event. There are plenty of them, and I've got a few that I'll share, but, but sometimes it's just that day-to-day, just that day-to-day wearing away of personal integrity, of, of not showing up for the family, of, of regularly looking at myself in the mirror and going, what, ha- what happened to Mama's little boy, you know? What happened to that kid, you know? I'm going to do better. Now, do better hardly ever meant that I'm not going to drink anymore. What it usually meant was I'm not going to let that happen anymore. I won't do that again. I'll drink better. You know, I'll try harder. I'll do what the book says is I'll make that effort to control and enjoy my drinking. Never did I want to stop drinking completely until an episode in 1980 that I'll tell you about. But, but I was just going to try to find a way to control and enjoy it. I was going to find a way to drink just enough to get everything that alcohol did for me without drinking so much that I suffered the pains of what it began to do to me. You know, it says back in uh, Freedom from Bond, excuse me, in, in the, uh, A Vision for You, uh, there's a great passage about what most normal folks get from a few drinks. Normal folks. They get conviviality. I didn't know what that meant for a long time. I thought I'd been arrested for solicitation of it. But, uh, <laughs> 
As it turns out, among other things, it means feasting and drinking. But it says it means colorful imagination. Joyous intimacy with friends. Release from care, boredom, and worry. And a feeling that life is good. I've got to be honest with you. I got a little thirsty just saying that. Uh, uh, I mean, that's a very attractive package to me. That's a very attractive package. But that's not what was happening to me. Uh, on, on July the 1st when I headed off to that treatment facility. That's not what drinking looked like on me at that time. Uh, much more often it was what follows in that, uh, on that same page where it says a guy like me might feel that momentarily, you know, between about 9.30 and 11. Says, but then comes oblivion and awakening to face the hideous four horsemen of terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. I'd become very acquainted with those four horsemen. Never did, I, never did I start a night out hoping that I would wake up with those four bedfellows. Always I was hoping for something in that first paragraph, perhaps joyous intimacy. You know, maybe just go have some fun. Maybe I'm mad and need, and need to blow some steam off. Maybe, it, maybe the weight of the world is on me. Whatever I decided, but never did I intend to do many of the things that I did before I took a drink. Anyway, after that day on uh, June the 30th with, uh, with our daughter Abby, on July the 1st, my friend Ricky came by to take me off to this treatment facility where I was supposed to go. And uh, uh, we're driving over there, and I had just a host of feelings I didn't want to be going. Obviously, I, I didn't think it was uh, fair for me to have to go. I thought I'd been given an unfair choice. Uh, I, I didn't know really what an alcoholic was. I had my view. I didn't think I was alcoholic. I knew that I drank and had a lot of trouble associated with my drinking. But we're driving over there, and Ricky said, Steve, what do you think this thing's going to be like, man? What, what's, what's this treatment deal? And I said, I don't know, man. I said, but I'll tell you one thing. I'm not going to get in some little circle and go, I'm Steve. I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, lying about the most intimate details of my life. So about three weeks later, I was just telling people way more than they wanted to know about me. <laughs> and and I got to be honest, I started making stuff up. Because uh, uh, Amaretta and Chuck E. Cheese was getting me no street cred, you know. I was... Uh, so I'll tell you what I've learned in the time since then, uh, uh, and one of the reasons I share those and other stories that, uh, that may seem to have little significance to some of you. But the fact is, it says back in the uh, uh, working with others that, uh, that we tell the new man exactly what happened to us. And what I've discovered is while my story most certainly will not resonate with everyone, it will resonate with someone. And what each of us, I believe, brings a value to Alcoholics Anonymous is the truth about ourselves. And if each of us is willing to share that truth, then ultimately that truth is going to find the appropriate target. You know, alcoholism looks different on different people. This room is full of a lot of differences we normally might not, you know, would not mix. This room is full of people that are different physically and educationally and, and financially and socially. And, and, all, and a lot of different personality types. You know, the book talks about the fact that the classification of alcoholics is in many ways outside the scope of the book. And then it classifies them, you know. That's the way we do. We say we don't know anything about something, but let me talk for a while to you about it. And, uh, uh, and the book talks about some of these different personality types. The psychopath. Uh, the manic depressive. Uh, 
The person who, after not drinking for a while, thinks perhaps he can drink. Uh, The person who's like other people in every respect, except the effect that alcohol has upon him. And then it gives what what has been so important to me, and and Bob spoke about it a little bit today in the workshop. It says, but all these and many others, so there must even be a host of others, have one thing in common. That thing that sets us apart as a distinct entity that separates the alcoholic from all of the non-alcoholics. Doesn't make us better or worse, just makes us alcoholic. The allergy to alcohol, the phenomenon of craving, that's the single thing I believe that I share with everyone that says he or she is an alcoholic. And there may be other things we share, but that, that, is, the, that is where we really plant our flag. And so that means that no matter how different we may be, how different our stories may be, how different alcoholism looks on you or on me, that when we get together, the alcoholism itself is not unique. That's why we've got this common problem and a common solution upon which we can absolutely agree because we don't have to segment off in little groups. Because I've got, and, and it doesn't make it so much easier. It certainly takes the guesswork out for me. I don't know which group of you I need to have. Let me find an alcoholic that I can identify with. What I need to identify with is the alcoholism. At least that's been helpful to me. It takes everything else off the board. So Ricky's driving me over there, and, and, uh, and I get out, and I walk in on that Saturday morning, and immediately they give me a test. They called it an assessment, but it felt very much like a test to me. There, it was questions and answers, and uh, uh, apparently it was to assess if I was an alcoholic and or drug addict, and if so, at what level. And uh, uh, there were 30 questions, and each question began with the phrase, have you ever? Yeah, I'm already in trouble with have you ever. I mean, you're taking the wiggle room out of it, right? And, and, and they explained, by the way, that have you ever means even once and even with a really good reason. And then it asked questions, questions that are impossible for a guy like me to answer. Have you ever drank in the morning? Have you ever drank alone? Have you ever had a blackout? Have you ever had a DUI? Have you ever been in trouble at work because of drinking? Have you ever been in trouble at home because of drinking? Thirty, have you ever questions that have simply checked yes or checked no to what are clearly essay questions? <laughs> These are questions that beg for an explanation. And again, we're laughing here, but I promise you that morning, man, that morning, See, I know if I check that box, people are going to draw conclusions about me. And they don't, how, how can they do that? They don't know me. See, I, how can they do that? They don't know the backstory. How can they do that if I don't get to explain myself? Have you ever drank in the morning? I mean, I had questions about the questions. Uh, uh, I said, okay, what do you mean morning? And, and, uh, no. Now, now, this is a valid question, and uh, uh, because, see, I, I think I know what they were trying to get at, you know. Am I, am I that guy that's got to reach over and grab that, you know, half pint of hot gin off the nightstand to, to get started at 6 in the morning? You know, you might think I'm that kind of alcoholic. Because, see, but what if I'm at last call at 2 a.m. somewhere? What if I'm up late drinking? 
Does that make me a morning drinker? I need to let you know. Now, I can't tell you I just drink in the morning. I've got to tell you why, when, and under what circumstances. Back in the story Freedom from Bondage, she talks about uh, rationalization. And she describes rationalization as giving a socially acceptable explanation for socially unacceptable behavior. <laughs> and looking back, that's what I was trying, not only there during that test, but so much of my life before getting to Alcoholics Anonymous, and sometimes since. But how can I provide an explanation that will justify my actions? It might have nothing to do with the actual motivation for the action. But I need, I need to explain myself. And see, over time I realized that, that, that not only was I trying to explain myself to other people, but, but toward the end I was having to give me an explanation about me to rationalize my behavior so I could live with the person I was becoming. Anyway, I didn't do very well on the test. Uh, I think the only one there's, that I know that I answered honestly, because I think I answered yes to, you know, positively to 10. I, I misunderstood several questions and, 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 and lied on some that clearly deserved to be lied on. And uh, then the only one I know I answered honestly, you know, was I, I never drank while pregnant. And, <laughs> no, not even once and not even with a really good reason. But here's the good news for me. See, I get to Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous explained to me uh, that how I answered the questions on that test isn't what makes me alcoholic. That, that those types of questions may uh, expose my alcoholism. They may shine a light on my alcoholism. They may be evidence of my alcoholism, but they're not what make me alcoholic. I'm not alcoholic because I did those things. I did some of those things because I'm alcoholic. If you took the test, you might answer yes or no to different questions than I did. So, so there's no single, you know, single question in there that, that, that puts me over the line. But, but you helped me understand after a little while with that simple phrase that was uh, in our book on page 44 that says, if when you honestly want to, you find you can't stop entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. And when I got to a point where I could be honest with myself about that and lay my life experience over those two explanations and see if it fits, then I knew where I landed. See, I couldn't stop entirely. They said stop entirely means to stop and never start again. So, so far I've stopped entirely since June 30th of 1989. See, i got alcoholism today. I've got alcoholism every day. Sometimes I suffer from it, sometimes I don't. But the good news is I hadn't been drunk from it since June 29th of 1989. Now, my spiritual growth ebbs and flows. I'd like to, Dow Jones has been working the last few weeks. I mean, I, you know, I bottomed out about three weeks ago, and, uh, uh, and it was ugly. You know, that happens every now and then. My sponsor said that, that our, our time is a measurement of that, of time between our last drinking today, and it does not measure my spiritual growth or where I am at any given time. But I hope, if there were a graph, that over time, while there would be dips and ebbs and flows, that it would, that it would be steadily climbing over time, that the graph is still going up. Um, I was in that treatment facility, and it was uh, about two or three days in there that uh, two men from Alcoholics Anonymous brought in what was my, the first men I ever met from AA that I'm aware of. 
and the first AA meeting that I was a part of, that I was aware of. Uh, the folks in treatment and these men made clear the difference between what the treatment facility was doing and what AA was doing. And they both had great value, but they were different, and it was important for me to understand that difference. And, and, and both, both entities helped with that. These men came in, and, and it seemed like, I don't know if some of you have been through the treatment experience, but mine felt like, again, whether this is what was happening, I don't know. Here's what it felt like, because I didn't want to be an alcoholic. It felt like I'd been charged with the crime of alcoholism, and they were spending all day long prosecuting me of the charges. And they were asking me a lot of questions about my drinking, and then they were using my answers, as they did on that test, to try to convict me of this charge. And they say, Steve, don't you see? Don't you? I mean, isn't it clear? I mean, you guys know, we know here logic plays no role in, in an alcoholic, in trying to help someone with alcohol. You know, like I could talk. I got lots of really good information long before I got to AA. These two men, for, and, and what, when they're convicting me of these charges and, and asking me these questions, I'm preparing my defense. And we volleyed back and forth most of the day. But these two men from AA came in, as Alcoholics Anonymous suggest we do, they came in as ex-problem drinkers in whom the problem had been solved, properly armed with the facts about themselves. They told us to sit back, relax. I know now both these guys were a couple years sober, and they were just doing what, you know, they'd been sent by their sponsors on some mission. And... uh, they didn't want us to ask any. Just sit back, relax, boys. We're going to talk a while. And, uh, but what they said was is that, that they shared about their alcoholism. And they shared about the solution that they were finding in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they said they weren't interested in trying to convince any of us that we were alcoholic. That they weren't on a, a membership drive from Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> they weren't going to get a commission on any of us, you know. They were just there to see if we identified they would be happy to help in any way that they could. Uh, it's about three weeks into that. Uh, you know, I'm going to back up now and kind of tell you how I got to that treatment facility, and then we'll get sober for a little while. But uh, uh, I grew up in Smyrna, Tennessee, a small town just outside of, uh, of Nashville. Uh, about 5,000 people when I grew up there in the 50s and 60s. I was born in 1953. Uh, middle-class family. Uh, no particular reason, no circumstantial reason for me to be alcoholic. I think what I've discovered is, is that circumstances and, and conditions don't seem to cause alcoholism. There's that line in the book that says, we thought conditions drove us to drink. It never occurred to us to change ourselves to meet conditions. Now, I love that language because it, because it doesn't say that, that we considered it and then do it. It says, it never even occurred to me to change myself to meet conditions. It never occurred to me that that was one of the options. That, wait, maybe, maybe I need to change. Maybe everything and everybody else isn't the problem. My old sponsor, Frank, used to say, it ain't them, Steve. It ain't them. I'd say, Frank, it is often cleverly disguised as them. <laughs> Man, it looks like them sometimes, doesn't it? But it's not. It's not. When, when our spiritual axiom uh, tells a guy like me that whenever I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me. That used to bother me. Maybe it did some of you. I, th- I said, I thought that was telling me that I'm, I'm wrong. I, I am at fault for, for these problems that I've decided are causing me this disturbance. 
I think what it says today, or at least the way that I try to utilize it, is, is whenever I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me. And what's wrong with me is that I'm disturbed. And the solution is to be undisturbed. And I showed up here thinking the only way for me to be undisturbed was to resolve these circumstances to my satisfaction. When the real way to get undisturbed is to be okay with more and more circumstances. That freedom of the bondage itself opens my world up to a host of things. More and more things can happen to me today. More and more things, it is okay for more and more things. I'm almost afraid to say that out loud anymore, but... uh, 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 but it's true. Now, I still get, I get knocked off balance like anybody. But, but that spiritual axiom is 100% of the time, right? we got 200% rules in AA as far as I can tell. One is, is, that, is that nothing so much will protect me from that allergy as total abstinence, 100% not drinking. And then the other is, if I'm disturbed 100% of the time, it's me. That's really pretty good news. But it requires me to approach life in a different way. Um, when those guys left that night, nothing, I used to say nothing big had happened, but the fact is something miraculous had happened, but it was almost imperceptible by me. See, when they were talking, I wasn't preparing my defense. I didn't, I didn't take the AA altar call that night. You know, I didn't go, oh, let go and let God, boys, I'm in. Uh, 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 did not happen. But when they left, I felt better for them having been there. And I hoped they would come back. And what I know happened is that just opened the door just a little bit, maybe opened my mind just a little bit, so that that next thing could happen, and that next thing, and that next thing. And about three weeks into that treatment stay, I decided, uh, I started saying out loud I was alcoholic. Now, I'm not sure I 100% knew what I was saying when I was saying I was an alcoholic. I'm not sure I understood all the conditions of alcoholism, and I sure didn't understand what you and AA were going to ask me to do to recover or offer for me to do to recover from that hopeless state of mind and body. But I began to say it, and I made a decision that I needed to stop drinking. Now, needing to stop drinking is a real different decision for me than wanting to stop drinking. They happened at different times, and I'm not sure I can tell you exactly when it happened, but what came to me is I need to stop. And I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try to jump on board this AA thing. And I, and I, got, I got pretty excited about AA very early. I came out of there and went, to a, uh, uh, went up to a clubhouse there in, in Nashville, Tennessee called 202 and fell in with some, uh, with some big book guys. That, uh, and I don't mean, you know what, the people downstairs, it's a, it's a great little clubhouse. Bob has been there with me before. And Edith, you may have been to 202 before. Got an upstairs where most of the meetings are, and downstairs uh, there's a group of tables, often referred to as the half measures tables. And uh, uh, the people, because a lot of people sit around those tables and never make it upstairs. And uh, uh, the people down at the half measures tables call the folks up in that meeting big book thumpers. And it wasn't a term of endearment. And, uh, uh, and, but that wasn't my experience. That's really not what those folks did when I wandered in there, much by accident. What they did was introduce me to the message in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. They showed me a message whose integrity is protected because it's in print. And a well-meaning guy like me can't screw that up over time. And uh, uh, my sponsor, Frank, encouraged me to spend some time in there with him. It was, he was not yet my sponsor, but he says, Kid, why don't you come in here? Why don't you hang out with us for a while? He says, so when you go to those other meetings, to when you go to the discussion meetings, and 
he encouraged me to go. He says, so when you go, you'll know whether what's being talked about is Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, I love an open discussion meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I mean, I love it. Like, I love it primarily because I can't wait to hear what I have to say anymore. But, uh, 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 but that's my problem. And, uh, so in those literature meetings, you'll bring me back to the solution right away. Uh, when I'm growing up there in that... Uh, Middle-class family in Smyrna, Tennessee. I was a good kid. Middle, you know, nothing going on. I'm a good kid. I'm going where I say I'm going to go. I'm with who I say I'm going to be with, and I come home when I say I'm going to come home. And I say I'm a good kid. What I really was was a compliant kid. You know, I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to color outside the lines. There were parts of me internally that were, you know, that were yearning to, uh, uh, to walk on the wild side. But I didn't think I was a guy that did that. So I'm just doing what I, what I think is expected of me. I made a decision I wasn't going to drink. No big deal. I mean, it wasn't some huge thing. Uh, I'd had no people in my house drank. My mom and dad drank. Uh, uh, alcohol wasn't a big deal. It didn't feel like a big deal to me in that home. Uh, but I just decided not to drink. I was playing sports. And uh, uh, now I'm a freshman in college at uh, Middle Tennessee State University just outside of Smyrna there in, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Two buddies of mine come by. I jumped in the back of a 1968 canary yellow Volkswagen Bug, and uh, as we're driving to a basketball game, they hand back a bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill wine. Yeah. You know, I hate it when y'all groan about the Strawberry Hill. I, you know, this AA is the damnedest place I've ever been. Uh, uh, you know what, because we'll go to meetings and, and, you know, we'll brag about holding up 7-Elevens and I got four wives in four states, you know, but, but ooh, I didn't drink to Boone's Farm. And, uh, uh, <laughs> any rate, we're, we're driving to that basketball game and, and, and I decided to, to drink along with the guys and it was sweet enough. I know I've impressed you both my first drink and my last drink. Uh, uh, you guys wouldn't put that on your pancakes, but uh, uh, we're driving to the game. And I had the experience. Everybody describes their own and describes it differently. Uh, 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 but all of a sudden, I couldn't wait to get where we were going. And because I thought you couldn't wait to see me when I got there. And uh, I don't think I'd ever felt that comfortable and that at ease and had that profound alteration in my reaction to life. And uh, it was, I blacked out that night. I'm a, I'm a blackout drinker. It doesn't require a lot for me to lose time. I didn't black out for days. I'm a guy that just lost time during the night. I love what the comedian Dave Attell said. He said that he's a blackout drinker, as he likes to call it time travel. And, uh, 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 and I get that, you know, that you ever just all of a sudden go, whoa, how did I get here in the future? And what has been going on? And then try to figure it out by not asking direct questions to people. You read faces, you're trying to navigate, you know. Man, I did that a lot. You know, was I just funny last night or did I, you know, go way off the, off the rails? Anyway, I don't know if I was alcoholic before I took that drink. And I don't know if I was alcoholic right after I took that drink. And I don't know at what point I became alcoholic. I, I can't pinpoint it for you. Because I don't know if I drank, you know, uh, alcoholically from that moment on, because I drank enthusiastically from that moment on. 
And, what, and if you're not trying to control your drinking, it's impossible to know if you can. Uh, in the doctor's opinion, they talk about the fact that while they can't prove it, many of them feel like they could have uh, stopped drinking early in their drinking career. And the reason they can't prove it, I believe, is the same reason I can't prove it. They didn't try. And lack of power doesn't seem to be a problem until I try to exert some power. You know? Lack of power is not, you know, and I didn't know if I was having, you know, I didn't think about, did you think in terms of lack of power? I mean, when you, made, when you decided to stop drinking for that week or that month or until 5 o'clock or those, those periodic things like I did every now, I was never going to stop drinking forever, but I was going to moderate or do it differently or stop for a week or a month. And, and, and when I decided to, you know, abort that mission, I didn't think, whoa, lack of power just kicked in, you know. I just thought I changed my mind. I just felt, I mean, really, it just seemed like I changed. I just thought, wait a minute, man. I just thought, you know, ah, that's silly. I'll do better. In 1980, I left a TGI Fridays. I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'd been uh, uh, throwing back kamikaze shooters and taking two and alls in there that afternoon. And, and uh, uh, I got in my car, and I got on the interstate uh, on 285, the perimeter of Atlanta, going east in the westbound lane. And I hit a car head-on, and two other cars hit us, and totaled all four cars. And I came to in the Fulton County Jail the next morning. I urinated on myself and vomited on myself. Or, you know, I hope I did. Somebody did. And, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 I mean, I, I know you guys know that uh, if you find yourself in the drunk tank, rule number one is find a wall to back up against and just stay up all night. But I, I didn't make it. But anyway, in all earnestness, I found myself there that morning in that state, fuzzy recollection of what happened. Uh, I'd never been more afraid of the consequences that awaited me personally, professionally, uh, legally. I got sued over that later. So I didn't know how badly people had been hurt. Uh, they had been sent to the hospital but not hurt badly. Uh, I'd never been more uh, ashamed of what I'd done. I had never been more uh, humiliated at the state I found myself on my own vomit, moan, urine. And I had never been more certain that I'd never drink again. That's the time I decided never to drink again. And ten days later, I was driving down the road, smoking a joint, drinking a bottle of wine, thinking, Ooh, I nearly overreacted to that. <laughs> now, it sounds funny here. See, what, what we get to do here, certainly what I get to do from here, is look back at the absurdity of my life from today's point of view. But man, living that. Nothing funny then, right? Nothing funny then. One more drinking story, and then I'm going to sober up. I was down in, I, I kind of run away from home. Uh, 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 went down to uh, Florida. I've I been working in a family business, and I thought my brother wasn't treating me fairly. He's just four years older than me, and my dad, our, our dad had died, and my brother took over our little business at 22. I was 18. Now, flash forward, I'm 21. He's 25. And, uh, uh, and I just ran away. Went down to Florida, got a job down there. Some people unfamiliar with my driving history uh, gave me a company car. Uh, 
I went over, visited with some 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 boys that uh, we were watching Monday night football, and at halftime, I, I we were drinking heavily and accessorizing that with a variety of other things, and. Uh, I left at halftime of that ball game to go back over to the palatial garage apartment I was living in, and uh, 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 I fly down this uh, little uh, residential street. Uh, I don't navigate this turn that's uh, at the end of it. I drive this car into this tree uh, uh, really hard. Boom, smacked the car, smacked the tree, shook me up, didn't hurt me badly. Uh, caved in the uh, roof of the car, the, the whole passenger side, knocked out the front windshield, the back windshield, and ultimately the car would be a total loss. But as I'm there and shaking, I recognize that uh, i got to get out of here or, or police are going to come and I'm going to get another DUI and I'm going to lose this job and all the stuff that comes with that. So I put the car in reverse and amazingly it backed away from the tree. And I start driving back over to my buddy's house so we can put a plan together. And, uh, I know I'm with some folks who know a little something about putting a plan together. And uh, uh, I get over there, and we came up with a plan. The plan was we'd drink a couple of cups of coffee. These guys would get in the car with me. We would drive the car back over there and drive it back into the tree. Uh, not, not hard, you know, but, but uh, we would call the police because this coffee would have sobered us up, naturally. We'll call the police. The police will come. These guys will corroborate my story, serve as witnesses, that I had been run off the, the road by probably a drunken driver. And, uh, uh, we go over there. We pull the car back up to the tree. This is before everybody had a cell phone. I'm, I'm walking up to the house that's on the corner lot to borrow the guy's phone so I can make this call to the police and report this heinous crime. And... Uh, uh, as I'm walking up to the house, the guy runs out of his house. He's flying down there to where we are. And he says, man, are you okay? I, he says, is everybody all right? I said, yeah, man, we're fine. He said, well, it's the damnedest thing. You're the second guy to hit that tree tonight. <laughs> I said, yeah, man, you ought to cut that damn tree down. That is it is poorly placed. Right. I'm out of the treatment center now. I've been, I'm going down there to 202. I, I've, I've got uh, this guy, Frank, uh, as my sponsor, and, and, and I feel so, you know, like many of you, there are so many people who have been uh, such influences in my sobriety, sponsors that I've had. Other men and women uh, uh, in, in the meetings and groups that I've been a part of, and I'm so grateful for that. And, and I'm so grateful that things fell the way that they fell. I'm so grateful I wandered into that room where they were looking at that book because I promise you, I'm the kind of guy that if I had wandered into an open discussion meeting first, that's where I would have planted myself. Nothing wrong with that, but I'm not sure I would have ever gotten the foundation that I believe I was able to get with Frank and some of the folks in that room. And, uh, uh, and they helped me find myself, find myself first in the problem and then begin to find the solution that would help me out. Uh, uh, Frank was a, was, a, was a tough old bird. You know, he was 56 before he got sober. Uh, 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 he didn't take much from anybody. He, he didn't suffer fools gladly, and he often saw fools where there weren't any, you know. Frank's a guy that would interrupt people in meetings and uh, uh, call down new co- you know, to things that would make me cringe. Uh, 
A lot of people used to talk about Frank after he, you know, after he died. They say stuff, and he died three and a half years ago. They said, uh, they said, I used to hate that Frank Donnelly, but they stayed around long enough. They found something in him that I'm glad that I saw right away. wasn't for everybody, but man, he he treated me. So he took me that first day I asked him to be my sponsor. He took me into a little room and told me, spent about 15 minutes telling me what he wasn't going to do. I said, man, I'm glad we had this talk, Frank. Uh, uh, <laughs> He said, I'm not going to be your cab driver. He says, I'm not going to loan you any money. I'm not a marriage counselor. I'm not a career counselor. You know, I thought he was saying that we wouldn't talk about those things. I'll tell you, over the years, we talked about every facet of my life. But what he was saying, at least what, what I came to experience, is he wasn't about solving those problems. He was about helping me find the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous where I might navigate through life using those. He wanted to help me stay sober, become a different person so I could be more effective in all areas of my life. Uh, I got to be in the room with Frank when, uh, uh, when he passed away three and a half years ago. And, uh, you know, that's the first time. I'm a guy who couldn't go visit people in the hospital. Couldn't, wouldn't. I don't know where it was, but I was uncomfortable. Awkward. I'm a guy that was never willing to, to feel awkward because I am so self-conscious. Selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my problem. I feel, you know, in the book when it says we alcoholics are sensitive people, that's not a compliment. (laughs) I thought it was. When I couldn't go do those things, when I was able to be in the room and, and, and be holding that man's hand and kissed him on the forehead when he took his last breath. See, I didn't know I could do that. And what a privilege it was to be there with his wife and with his daughters and with two other men that he sponsored. Uh, I was about six months sober before I realized. And I'm loving AA and I'm loving going to meetings, but I'm, I'm showing up at a meeting and I'm going home from a meeting. And I was sober about six months before I realized you people were talking to each other between meetings. <laughs> Really, I thought it was like the football huddle. You know, we show up, we talk about it, we break, we go home, we come back tomorrow, talk about how it went. Uh, and I got, uh, you know that June 30th, the sobriety date, I remember sitting in a meeting uh, the weekend after Thanksgiving and hearing people talk about having been there at the, uh, uh, at the Alcathon and people having been over at different folks' houses. And I'm going, man. And then I began to notice people would say, after the meeting, they would say, we're all going to lunch. Who wants to go? I desperately wanted to go. Desperately wanted to go. But I wasn't willing to feel awkward. So I think I'm going to go, and I'd get in the car. You know, I'd say, I'll probably be there. I'll see you guys over there. And I'd get in the car. And, and then I'd veer off and go home. Because my fear was is that I would show up at the restaurant, and there would be six people already seated at a table for six. And I wouldn't know whether, they, whether I could pull a seventh chair up to this sixth table. I didn't know whether I could inconvenience him. I didn't know whether they meant me. See, what I really needed was three or four people to come up to me after the meeting and go, Steve, we have been talking, and, man, we really want you to go to lunch. <laughs> and we're just arguing about who gets to sit next to you. <laughs> I needed that. <laughs> Because I'm not willing to have that awkward moment.
tonight we went to dinner and people just, we had a table, started with a table for four, that turned into a table for eight, that turned into a table for 16 by the time we're done. Nobody there was afraid of the awkward moment. I promise you that. Uh, What a wonderful thing that was. Just show up. Just come on. And if you're new and they say we're going to lunch, we mean you. We want you to come. Don't veer off and drive home. Come with us. I could have kept making that right turn headed home for a long time. At a year sober, I moved to Richmond, Virginia, and I got a sponsor over there. Frank said, Steve, you're a guy that needs an in-town sponsor, man. He says, and, and he was right because I'm a guy that he knew I'd fall right back on the edges because I wouldn't experience that awkward moment. Even when I got to Richmond, I'd pull up to meetings, I'd park my car, and, and I'd see people smoking outside of the meeting. And, and it looked like a gauntlet I was going to have to run. <laughs> and I wouldn't go in. I'd wait till people started filing in, right, you know, right at time, and then I'd go in. But then I got to sponsor Joe. And uh, uh, if, if Frank introduced me to the big book, then, then uh, Joe introduced me to, uh, uh, to service and to being a part of AA. Uh, he got me involved right away. And Joe began to show me how to practice these principles uh, in my daily affairs. You know, we were going through the, the steps, and, and uh, uh, I'm looking in how it works, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm bothered by some of the language in this book. He said, some of us tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil, till we let go absolutely. I said, that seems to imply, Joe, that, I, that I, you know, every idea I had before I got to AA was a bad idea. I've never had a good idea. Only AA's got good ideas. I said, Joe, I showed up with some damn good ideas, man. He said, Steve, I'm sure you did, buddy. Said, I hadn't heard any of them, but I'm sure you did. <laughs> but his perspective and what, what I have adopted for me is that that's not what the book is saying. It's, it, now he said, Steve, you can't tell the good ideas from the bad ideas. Your discernment is questionable. But what AA is encouraging me to do is to have that open mind, to come in here and not be limited by my old ideas. Even if some of them are good, I might, have a, I might find a better idea. You're encouraging me. He said, he said, it doesn't mean they're without value. It doesn't mean throw them away. It doesn't mean discard them. But are you willing to let them go so your hands are free to embrace a new and better idea should it show up? Are you willing to set them down and go through this process of these 12 steps and see what comes to you? And he said, Steve, the first idea you need to let go of is the idea that you think you know what just happened. Man, that has been true for me so many times. You know, back in the, in the 12 step, in the 12 and 12, it talks about the fact that can we now adapt to seeming failure or success without pride or despair? And I love that language again. The word seeming implies that I don't know which is failure and I don't know which is success. So I need not be prideful about one nor despairing of the other. You ask me about something. You ask me today how how I'm doing and I tend to tell you how I feel. When something happened to me, I can't label it good, bad, right or wrong. I just know how it feels to me. And given time and perspective, those things which seem like, uh, like a negative turn into a positive. My wife, at 10 years sober, uh, uh, my wife and I went, went bankrupt. Uh, uh, now, if Connie were here, she would say that I went bankrupt and took her with me. But, uh, uh, 
it was a difficult time for us. A couple of years building up to that, uh, uh, you don't go broke overnight. You know, things were happening. I'm talking on the phone to the creditors every night. We're doing, you know, we're, we're just dealing with this thing, and, and, and the, the pressure ratcheted up in our home. And we began to argue a little bit. And one day we had, an, we had a fight that you can't pretend you didn't have, and we said things you can't pretend you didn't say. And then finally we made a decision after, after talking. I said, this is too hard. This is too hard for us to do this and fight with each other. And we made a decision to be partners in a way that we had never been before. We made a decision to quit blaming each other. We made a decision to walk through this together. And as long as we're together, we can do whatever we need to do. We can do what's in front of us. Now, the point I would make there is I thought I was going through bankruptcy when, in fact, we were going through relationship counseling. It just didn't look like it, you know. When they pulled up and took our two cars off in a flatbed truck and drove a uh, foreclosure sign in the front yard, we thought that was a bad day. In fact, what was happening is we were being stripped of everything so we could find each other. So we got all the things that were in between us out of the way, and it took a relationship that was a good relationship and, and really put it in, at another level for us. Uh, I spoke at a meeting one night. Uh, uh, I talked almost as long as I've talked tonight, you know, and, and it wasn't a speaker meeting. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and I began to feel bad about that. Uh, uh, this was, I was about... Three years, four years sober, you know, and I called Joe uh, when I got home and, and, and I said, Joe, did I sound self-righteous in that meeting tonight? And he said, oh, Steve, you're still asking all the wrong questions. He said, because the question isn't, did you sound self-righteous? The question is, were you self-righteous? And he said, see, he said, you don't care whether you were self-righteous or not. You're afraid they caught you. <laughs> you're afraid. And he was right. He you said, you're afraid that they are talking about you. Wasn't that the truth? Again, what you think about me was, was the driving force in my life. At 15 years sober, my brother and I was telling Edith today, we were looking at some buildings. We bought a little uh, office building, and uh, we were buying furniture for this office building, and we, we decided that this would be a good time to buy some furniture for our homes and charge it through the business as we were the office furniture for the business and get the tax advantages that come with that. And I was talking to Joe one day and just running this. I wasn't even asking for permission. Heck, I wasn't even conflicted by this, you know. Uh, 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 uh. And, and I'm, I'm just saying, it's, it's kind of what we're doing. And he said, Steve, I don't think I would do that. And my sponsors have never been men that have told me what to do. Uh, he says, I don't think I would do that. Uh, I said, well, I know it sounds a little bit like tax fraud. And, uh, uh, And he went, no. He said, it actually is tax fraud. <laughs> now, that's a distinction with a difference. See, what, what you have helped me do, what these sponsors have helped me do is not quit making mistakes, not quit making bad decisions sometimes, but you tell me I'm accountable for the decisions I make, that i got to stand in front of the man I am today. And he said, Steve, I don't care. He says, whether you do it or whether you don't do it, that's up to you. But don't kid yourself about what you're doing. You've taken my excuses away. You're making me live a life based on the truth, on what has really happened. Um, 
At 14, uh, at 1997, Connie and I moved back to Nashville, and uh, uh, and that's when we went through the bankruptcy, and then and then the Frank passed away. And just a, about two and a half years ago, I got a uh, a new sponsor uh, after after Frank had passed, and a guy named Don M is my sponsor now. And, and uh, so I did an inventory. You know, I did this inventory at at, at 20 years sober, and. Uh, uh, and I discovered some things I didn't expect to discover. That's kind of why we do them, right? I mean, I, I had to swallow and digest some big chunks of truth about me. And when I did this inventory, what I discovered was the, the predominant blockage in all three areas of investigation was pride. And I was shocked by that. And uh, uh, I told Don, I, I said, man, I just didn't see pride. He said, Steve, pride can't spot pride. Pride is camouflage to pride. Isn't that true? I mean, everybody around me probably knew pride was a big issue for me, but I was blind to it. You've taught me that I've got to be... So, having discovered that, I've got to be willing for that to be true about me. Because if there's a problem I'm unwilling to have, I'll have it forever. I'm stuck with it unless I can own it. At that sixth step, you didn't tell me this is where I was going to get perfect. It's where I'm going to become more perf- more comfortable with my imperfection. I got just a few minutes left here, so I want to do a do a couple of things and then close. Uh, uh, one of the things I discovered is my problem isn't what I think it is. We touched on it earlier, but you, you sit around, you get a problem, I get a problem, and my problem's not my problem. My problem is that my problem is a problem. <laughs> I have discovered that I'm the guy in charge of labeling something a problem. So I've tried to put the pen down and quit labeling those things. I've discovered that I spent much of my life waiting to have a good day. Getting ready to have one. Did you ever get ready to have a good day? I can almost see it from here, you know. I'm going to have a good day as soon as. As soon as this list of written or unwritten or conscious or subconscious things are taken care of. I was in a meeting when I was about 60 days sober, and uh, a brand new guy came in. And when you're 60 days sober, nothing you like better than a brand new guy to come in, because they'll quit talking to me and start talking to him, you know. And hell, I might take a shot at him myself, you know. And, uh, 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 and everybody kept telling this guy that he was really beat up and physically had, he, he, he was, had been in a wreck and different things. And they said, keep coming back, it gets better. The next person would share and say, keep coming back, it gets better. And seven or eight people ended their enthusiastic pitch with, keep coming back, it gets better. There's an old guy named Herb in there, and he says, I'll tell you when it gets better. He said, it gets better when it's okay the way that it is. That's what you've taught me here in AA. It's, it's, today's the day. Today is the only day that I can have a good day. And if I'm waiting to have it, then I'm waiting to have it. But that means I've got to be okay with me and with you under this set of circumstances as I am and as you are and find some comfort in that. And, man, life gets better when I'm willing and surrendered enough to let that happen. The last thing I want to do is just uh, do another thing our book suggests we do, and that is to talk about how we establish a relationship with a higher power. Uh, I showed up at AA with that. I, I don't think I was atheist or agnostic, but I was at a minimum apathetic. I just wasn't engaged. Uh, but I was uncomfortable when you talked about things like uh, God, higher power, spiritual experience, spiritual awakening, prayer, 
That made me really uncomfortable. I spent a fair amount of time telling people what I didn't believe about God. The guy pulled me aside one night, very politely. He said, Steve, good news. We don't care what you don't believe. <laughs> That's really good news, isn't it? He says, you're free not to believe anything you don't want to believe in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's nothing to fight about. There's nothing to debate about. You don't believe it, don't believe it. You don't want to believe that. He says, but decide what you do believe and act like a guy that believes it. And what happened when he said that was I realized that was my problem. I wasn't wasn't tied to anything. I didn't believe anything. I didn't know what I believed. Our book calls it no no anchorage to any set of permanent values. I was free-flowing. When we get together and do the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting, I, I... would break away from the group and not hold hands and put my hands behind my back. And uh, I said, Steve, what's that all about, man? And as earnest and honestly as I could say, I told him, I said, look, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. You know, I don't know what I believe. I don't, I don't, I'm not just going to, you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya with the rest of the campers, you know. Uh, 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 and this guy had heard my treatment uh, fifth step, a little confessional of all the tacky, tawdry things I had done. I mean, I didn't tell it all naturally, but I told a lot of it. And uh, uh, he said, "I'm really imp- hypocrite. You don't want." He says, "I'm so impressed where you draw the line, Steve." Hypocrisy. <laughs> and, uh, 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 yeah. He said, "But I got good news for you and bad news for you." And I said, "I'll play." You know, I felt condescended to, but uh, uh, you know, what's the bad news? Well, the bad news is that hypocrisy is way down your list of problems. And you might ought to address them in the order in which they will kill your ass. <laughs> What's the good news? The good news is, Steve, there's room for another hypocrite in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I'm glad you folks can identify. That is, that's as good a news for me tonight as it was then. And... Uh, uh, so that let me just move forward a little bit. And then I found some things that about eight years sober, I began to adopt and utilize for me what I found uh, a point of view that is expressed in, uh, in we agnostics. And uh, one is, is that, uh, that no one can fully define or comprehend that power which is God. Well, that made me more comfortable with what you said and what I said. That meant no one can fully, so you might be given a partial description. It's, in other words, none of us know it all. That made me more comfortable. So it's that deep within every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. In fact, in the uh, last analysis, it is only there that the great reality may be found. So I just adopted a point of view that, uh, that my higher power is deep within me and deep within each one of you. And that has become a connection point for me where I felt separated from you before. That is now what makes us alike in my mind. And that these steps are designed uh, uh, to remove those things that block me off. The book says that what will obstruct, obscure this newfound relationship is pomp, worship of other things, and calamity. And pomp's the reemergence of self, pride, ego for me. Worship of other things seems to be anything that I raise above the level of my relationship with that higher power, with my recovery, with AA. And calamity, while it can be going bankrupt, it can be disease, it can be death, or I can get home Friday, I mean Sunday, and uh, the shows that I scheduled to DVR record in my absence might not have taken. 
And as silly as that sounds, the reason that that's a calamity is because I've discovered that a calamity is anything that can't be happening to me. And again, in AA, there are less calamities because I am more and more willing for more and more things to happen to me. And it says, as I draw near to him, he'll disclose himself to me. And the way I draw near to him is to draw near to you. And so while I can't fully define or comprehend that power, while I can't get my arms around it, while I couldn't explain it to you uh, in language that would uh, do justice to what I feel, I know that that power is working in my life. And there was a man around Nashville, another one of my mentors, a gentleman named Mo H. And whenever Mo got a chance to share, uh, Mo would always end his talks with the verse to a poem. And when I first heard it over 14 years ago, uh, I knew that that simple verse explained my experience in AA much better. You probably wish I would have started with it and, and ended the talk then, uh, uh, but more clearly and more concise than anything else I've said. And Mo came down with cancer in 2003, and uh, my friend Jerry and I took him to breakfast at what would turn out to be six weeks before he passed away. So we sat there at breakfast. We knew that his time was short. And uh, Jerry went to get the car, and I was talking to Mo, and I asked him, I said, Mo, would you mind if when I get a chance to share my story, I end with the verse to that point? I said, well, help me remember you. And most importantly, in the truest sense of Alcoholics Anonymous, it will help me pass on what you've given to me and so many others. And uh, he was a little embarrassed. You know, he said, Steve, he said, oh, you know, if you think it'll help another drunk. And more than anyone I ever met, Mo loved the drunk. And my experience has been, and it's been true of me from time to time, that I show up here at Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love AA, but about a half hour later, I don't like alcoholics. <laughs> All of a sudden, they won't behave, you know, or... You know, I mean, Mo loved alcoholics. And the verse of that poem was, I sought my God, my God I could not see. And I sought my soul, my soul eluded me. But I sought my fellow man and found all three. Now, that's been my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. Nothing highfalutin. Just showing up. You guys allowing me to share this weekend with you. You sharing your lives with me. And as a result of that, this power is working in my life that I can't explain, it can't describe. But it's given me a life that's happily and usefully whole. I thank you for that, and I thank you for your patience tonight.